Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This season of the Solo Collective is brought to you by Pension B, an easy way to combine your existing pensions or start a new one. Pension B is a leading online pension provider and has enabled thousands of people to feel pension confident. I feel quite strongly about pensions. For a big chunk of my solo working life, I didn't have a pension, just an old workplace pension that I'd automatically contributed to in my early 20s. I have sorted things out now, though. I also feel strongly about women getting pensions. Women typically face an income gap of 38% compared to men when they retire in the UK which is down to a combination of lower pay throughout our careers, taking career breaks to care for others, and women just not having their own pensions at all. This even leads to female pensioners living in poverty, as many as one in five in the UK. Download the app or head to pensionbee.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. I'm really delighted that this season is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts. I'm a Tide customer myself, it's where the account for my photography studio lives, and I've been really pleased with how they've looked after us for the last few years. They make it really easy for sole traders and freelancers to set up business accounts for free, with handy tools like accounting integrations, invoicing, and much more. People often think that your money isn't protected in a challenger bank or app-based bank, but Tide has FSCS protection in the UK, just like traditional bank accounts. Tide is dedicated to small businesses, and whenever I've needed help, the people on the app's chat function have been super responsive. Tide helps me grow my business. Go to tide.co or download the app today to find out more about getting started. Hello and welcome back to The Solo Collective. As always, it's lovely to have you with us. Today we're talking about money, which is one of the harder topics to talk about, whether you're a solo worker or not, I think. And I wanted today to talk with Claire Seal, who, yes, has the same name as me, but is not related to me, who has written a really brilliant book called Five Steps to Financial Wellbeing, How Changing Your Relationship with Money Can Change Your Whole Life, which I think is a fair sell. I don't think she's overstating things there. And it's a really, really good book. It's a lovely read and it's got loads and loads of brilliant advice. And it also tells Claire's story, which is fascinating and I think very powerful because she's so honest about what she's gone through in her 20s she got herself into fairly substantial amounts of debt and as part of her attempt to dig herself out of that debt she started an anonymous Instagram account my frugal year which is still going which followed her journey away from debt and into kind of financial safety and she outed herself during that process and now writes a lot about financial well-being and financial wellness. And I think it's wonderful that somebody who's had such a complicated and difficult situation in their life is now talking about how other people can dig themselves out of the same hole. We have a pretty wide ranging conversation today. We talk a lot about the kind of general emotional stuff around finance and money, but also about some really practical stuff around how we can build our financial lives more securely. I think it's also worth noting that 
this is a conversation that has a certain level of privilege. I think Claire and I are both aware of that. It's only possible to talk about money in these terms once you have just about enough of it. And that is a very complicated and difficult aspect of the way that society is currently living. I think we both just wanted you to know that we know that too and that it's hard for a lot of people right now. But I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. I learned a lot even though I am supposedly a grown-up and I should know what I'm doing with my money by now. Thank you so much for this. I'm excited to talk about this stuff because um, because it's really hard to talk about. Yeah. We quite often reflect with other guests on the fact that our income is very connected to our sense of self-worth and that kind of thing. But I don't feel like I've got the skill set to dig deeply into it. And mm. obviously I'm an awkward British person who finds it <laughs> difficult to talk about money <laughs> as well, even though I understand fully how important the transparency is about, about income, especially when you work by yourself. But before we get onto all of that, there's a few questions I always like to ask just about what your kind of solo working life looks like and to what extent you work alone and how much time you spend by yourself and where you work if you are working by yourself yeah so I mean my setup is and has been like chaos basically for the last couple of years since I started working for myself my desk is next to my bed because that's the only place that it can go which is great for work-life balance as you can imagine um (laughs) But yeah, yeah, no, I I do mainly work alone and I do have a co-working space that I can spend, I think, up to 20 hours a month in. That's really helpful. I have like very recently been diagnosed with ADHD and a big thing in sort of neurodiverse community is this idea of body doubling. So actually that works really well for me. Body doubling is really just where somebody is present yeah about feeling another presence there and quite a lot I think it's probably quite helpful for a lot of people but particularly for neurodivergent people the act of having somebody else in the space is really good for keeping you on track with whatever you're doing whether it's like a personal thing or a work thing but yeah I do mostly work alone and mostly in my house and I think that's probably been a bad thing it's something that I'd I'm not necessarily quite there yet with my way of working, I don't think. You're still two years in, I think it's still quite early stages, especially since you've been navigating a pandemic at the same time. I'm not sure those two yeah. years entirely count in terms no, of I don't figuring the out the setup. <laughs> I don't think these last two years can count for almost anything. Yeah, definitely. I think especially if you're working in your bedroom, I think that's really yeah. tough. I think as well, all this stuff about the setup is a, you're always a work in progress. Yeah. On to money (laughs) and finance and personal financial wellness, which is a phrase from your book that I really love. Can you give me a brief potted history of how you ended up in the kind of financial well-being space that you're in now? Yeah. So I think for a lot of people in the space, they come from maybe a bit more of a formal background or because they've always been great with money and they wanted to share that. It's definitely not the case for me. It's three years ago now, which seems mad, but I had had just a terrible relationship with money for sort of the first 10 years of my adult life. I think I had brought some stuff with me from my childhood and also just I felt I always felt like I was doing a lot. I was always like switching accounts, reading up on things, but I didn't get it and I was 
spending my spending was so out of control I found it so hard to know like what my means were plus also I had two children when I was in my 20s and got married and it was a real perfect storm so it culminated in about 27 grand's worth of debt spread across seven different credit cards and one overdraft and it just had spiraled for a really long time and what I hear from a lot of other people who've had a significant amount of debt is that it feels manageable and manageable and manageable until suddenly it isn't and that definitely is what happened to me. So I did what any sane person would do and set up an Instagram account to try and um, (laughs) sort of document my journey. I had this horrible phone call with my bank where I was in an unarranged overdraft. So that's like the bad one. And you used to get charged a daily fee, but things have changed a bit now. But the customer service advisor on the other end of the phone was asking me when I was going to be out of this an arranged overdraft and I said well it's going to be the end of the month because that's when I get paid and she asked why and nobody had ever asked me that before because I wasn't talking about this to anyone I was only talking to her about it because I absolutely had to she asked me why and I just heard myself say there's just no money left and it was the first time I think that I'd ever allowed myself to admit that things weren't were no longer within my control so I came off that phone call and she was very helpful actually she kind of she refunded some fees she gave she pointed me towards some good advice that was kind of a joint sort of breaking point and turning point but I started to document not just like the numbers side of things but also how I was feeling on my Instagram account and I thought it would probably just be like a handful of people who'd maybe shout at me if I spent too much. That was sort of what I was looking for initially. But actually what happened was loads of, I just got loads of people who identified, loads of people who'd been through it, who were going through it. I don't know that I would have got there if it hadn't been for that. So yeah, then the last three years, I have worked on that. We've finished clearing that debt a year ago and now moving towards sort of buying our first home which is really exciting but along the way I just developed some sort of like tools and techniques and ways of talking about things that seemed to work for me when nothing else had and also shared them with other people who found them helpful as well. I think it's brilliant because I think what you're saying about coming from a place of difficulty and confusion is so profoundly important because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is why we experience money in such an emotional way and yet our tendency in in terms of discussing it or dealing with it is very clinical. I don't have an independent financial advisor but my husband does and I was thinking he just tells us about, I don't know, ices and other things like that all of which are important but they don't actually get to the bottom of why it is that you know even now at this stage in my life where I'm you know comparatively stable financially I still go to bed sometimes worrying about whether I'm going to make enough money as in my solo working career and these worries sit inside us they're very visceral they're very real but actually there's no provision for how to talk about them 
Yeah, you're really right. And I think it's been a massive sort of gap, advice gap, education gap. And I think there are so many different causes for that gap. I think that A, like the traditional financial advisor model is that financial advisors are potentially not that interested in you until you've got something that they could help you to invest. So not that many people have enough money to be interesting to a financial advisor because they work off what's called an assets under management model. So that's how they make their money from referrals and from taking a cut. So if you don't have very much to invest, then you're not a worthwhile client to them and they have to make a living too, right? Yeah. There's there's that side of things, but it's frustrating because actually financial advice is regulated by the FCA. So anybody else, any other role is very limited in what advice they can give you in their professional capacity. So that sort of leaves it up to like friends and family. And there's not very Mm -hmm. much of a formal education. It's very hit and miss. It's a real lottery as to what education you get at school. And then it's a lottery as to what your parents' relationship with money is like, what your social circles are like, you know, all kinds of different influences on your life. And it is partly filled by the role of like a financial coach. So I'm I'm actually doing some training at the moment, some financial coaching training. It has to be really handled with care because of this, these regulations and not falling foul of them. But you can really get into the emotions attached to money but it's very difficult I mean we're very buttoned up about money in this country especially but also around the world because I think there's so much of it that's sort of about power and hierarchy and we don't want to admit things we don't want to push ourselves lower down in status you know it's very Mm -hmm. it's a very big thing we don't want to admit to a lack of security. There are lots of connotations around difficulties with money that go with kind of responsibility and adulthood. You know, I hear a lot of people saying that they don't feel like they're grown up because they struggle in their relationship with money. And it's a bit like food in that if you have a disordered relationship with alcohol or with recreational drugs, you can It's very difficult. I'm not trying to undermine that fact at all, but it's possible to live without them. So you can completely Mm -hmm. give them up. What's really, really hard is learning how to use something in a different way. And I, you know, I can identify with that in terms of both food and money, but they are both things that you have to continue to use. So changing your relationship with money, I think it's very difficult. Yeah, I had exactly the same thought um, while reading your book, actually. The point at which I could really have done with advice, proper, regulated, professional financial advice, was when I left home, when I was 18, and when I went to university. Over that three-year period, I managed to get myself into five grand's worth of credit card debt and also to blow some money that I inherited. And this was despite, I think, having a fairly sensible kind of grounding in money and the value of money from my parents, who you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. We weren't sort of flashy. And also they were quite careful in the way that they used money. It wasn't kind of an emotionally loaded thing. And yet I still managed to get myself into quite a concoction of difficulty. It's a massive shame that there isn't more help out there. Although what I would also say 
to listeners of the podcast is that there is information and there is help out there and it's annoying that it has to be our direct responsibility when we work for ourselves in finding yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a real like abundance of different information about money out there and I think what's important is that everyone has like a good grounding in the basics. But I think if you talk to any actual financial advisor they'll talk to you about like the power of compound interest right so Einstein said it was <laughs> the was it Einstein or all have been someone someone like that uh said that it's the eighth <laughs> wonder of the world because it's sort of like he who knows how to use it earns it he who doesn't pays it this is the idea where you save some money you get paid interest and then you get paid interest on your interest and so on and so forth and it's sort of exponential but we can like apply that also to just everything about your relationship with money. It tends to compound in one way or another after you get control of your own finances. So I was speaking to a woman called Vivi Friedgut. She's the founder of Black Bullion, which is like university financial wellbeing company. And she was saying that, you know, it is about this like K-shaped graph. So for people who get it really early on they're on the upwards but for a lot of people who don't get it they're on the downward and it's once you've gone a little ways along the road it's much harder to jump from one up to the other Mm -hmm. so yeah it's very tricky and there's not enough in terms of education it is not the first thing on your mind when you're in your late teens early 20s which is when most of us are given the boxes to tick for like massive student overdraft student account credit card and then like I didn't finish paying off I didn't pay off at all my student overdraft until I was 30 so Mm. you know these things they can have really long tails into your adult life is very very tricky and it's so not helped by the fact that it's very much still something people see as not okay to talk about yeah if we're thinking about people who work by themselves what do you think the easiest or maybe most common financial mistakes to make would be self-employment is a whole other world of sort of relationship with money I think it's very very difficult for your net worth and your self-worth not to be more interlinked than ever Mm -hmm. and ideally if you want to get to a state of more like financial well-being they need to be at least a bit separate the two biggest mistakes generally are sort of making it so that all of your time is for sale and that's a mistake that I've made a lot so not Mm -hmm. ring fencing me yeah not ring fencing hours (laughs) of your life that are not for sale and then you know you just burn out and that's no good for like your finances or your well-being but I suppose the other one purely practical is not understanding how tax works Mm -hmm. and not fully appreciating the implications of that and I think that's something that happens to most people when they first start out working by themselves especially if they're working alone because there's no one there to really tell you about it the information that's out there actually is quite bitty and until you get an accountant you don't really have anyone to talk to about it 
Yeah, I think the UK tax regime is really unhelpful for self-employed people. The way that the tax is taken on account and you pay an amount for your future liabilities and some for your past liabilities and they can change so radically. I have a spreadsheet that my brilliant sister created for me that has a space at the top where you just put the gross amount of income from a particular job in and it spits out all the different numbers. So this is what I need to set aside for my pension. This is what I set aside for my tax by percentages, a little bit for a holiday fund, a little bit for the savings, and then the rest goes into a different joint account that I then use to pay from. The The money goes into an account that I never use apart from for money to go into, yeah. so I can never sort of spend out of that account accidentally before it's all been allocated, which is really, really useful, having to having like that barrier point between yeah, like the money coming account. in and the money, yeah, being um, accessible. I have conversations all the time with solo workers who have been really, really shocked by their tax bill and and are going to have to work for months at a time to pay off the debt that the tax bill's incurred, which is a really horrible position to be in. Yeah, and I think the problem with like HMRC debt is that it can sometimes feel like this never-ending cycle because Mm -hmm. obviously as you're earning you're still then incurring more taxes (laughs) Um, and the fees can be really substantial as well Um, so there are there are a couple of things of like like you said the the system's not ideal there are a couple of things to maybe be aware of so the first is that that payment on account is always often a real shock to the system so I was clobbered by that this year as well but if you think that you're if you think it was a one off and you're not going to earn that amount you can dispute it with HMRC you can ask them to take it off the mm. only thing then is that they do take issue with it if you then earn more so they'll say like why didn't yeah. you tell us that you were going to why did you tell us that you weren't going to earn as much um but also you can if if you get to like the end of January or the end of July and you don't have the affordability for you to pay your tax bill you can speak to them you can do it online sometimes but you can speak to HMRC and you can ask them to set up a payment plan that's affordable for you and the great thing about HMRC is that you'll never speak to the same person twice so if you speak to someone and they're being horrible to you and they're really judgmental and they they're being really obstructive just put the phone down and then and pick it up and phone again and you'll get somebody else and they might be better but yeah it's difficult and the communication is notoriously bad with HMRC as well it's a whole whole minefield the tax system but your spreadsheet sounds absolutely amazing I do have a hard and fast rule where a certain percentage of my income goes into a space. I use Starling Bank, so you can have spaces within your account and it goes into a space that is not to be touched. Yeah, there are two bits of advice I always give to people who say they're going to go freelance. One is that you should, before you go freelance, try and save up three months worth of rent or mortgage payments. Yeah, like (laughs) Um, an emergency And and have them 
yeah, an emergency fund and just have them set aside. Not on the assumption that you'll ever need to use them, but more on the assumption that it just does an enormous amount for your well-being, knowing yeah. that you will not lose your <laughs> lose your house if you have a bad couple of months. And the second is to make an assessment of what your tax liabilities are likely to be and to set aside money from every pay packet that you get to never assume that the next fee that you get will pay for for the tax on the previous one. Is there something in in what you're saying as well about the kind of inconsistency of income that we solo workers get? Because I think that's one of the things that I find most challenging is that I might not actually have anything come in for three or four months, either because I'm being paid by a lot of people on a similarly long payment schedule or because I'm being paid by one client in big chunks over a longish period of time it's got an advantage and a disadvantage for me one is that because it comes in a big chunk I find it slightly easier to set a chunk of that aside as a as a savings pot because it feels kind of more manageable to do that than it did when I had a salary and it wasn't a very high salary and I didn't feel like I could take even 50 pounds of it out to save so I think that's there's a positive thing there but there's also this kind of weird stretching of time where you've got these big patches where you're just seeing your safety net dis- diminish ever so. Like, yeah. And it and it really affects your sense of self-worth, I think, because like you say, it's so intrinsically connected. I think it definitely does. And I think that would be less if you could ever trust that your invoices were going to be paid on time. Mm-hmm. So even if it's, I've had it even with people that I've worked with many, many times before, if something gets mislaid in the accounting department or something doesn't have the right number on it, you know, or someone goes on holiday, it can really mess things up. I actually am in the process of like restructuring all all of my work streams so that I can take a certain salary, pay myself a salary every month out of a limited company. Because to me, that's like will help me in so many different ways it's really hard to get to that point because you have to have got to the point where you're earning more than you like, enough to meter out in those across a few different mm-hmm. months. So it can be really tricky to find the right balance. And also what's right for one person isn't necessarily right for another. But I think, you know, your sort of method with the holding account and knowing your money goes into a place and you're paid out of that I think can be a way to try and take back a bit of that control. What do you think about things like, I mean, this is quite UK specific and we do have listeners outside the UK, but I find it really frustrating that companies can take as long as they do here to pay people. I find it quite shocking that there's no requirement to pay you when you deliver the work, like there is when you buy a toothbrush. (laughs) You know, that there can be this enormous lag between the delivery of our service and being paid for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are there are like lots of different opinions on this. I think I really feel like the whole system needs a huge overhaul. So the regulations around when things are paid, a standardized system for invoicing because the different requirements. I've worked with people who need you to invoice them through their platform. That really messes with my accounting. Mm. So you have to remember I, I would normally invoice through my accounting platform. So I have two different ones that I use um, for my company and for my sole trader stuff. But that's all fine. But then if you've got someone who needs you to invoice through a, 
in a special way through a certain platform, you've then got to remember to retain all of that information, add it to your tax return, all of that different stuff. So I would love to see something that says you can't require people to spend four weeks going through an approval process on a on a software platform before they can even send you an invoice. Mm-hmm. If you're working for companies, it can be so impersonal and there often isn't like an appreciation of the fact that your cash flow is really important. And that what you're earning from them could represent everything that month or, <laughs> you know, just a huge, a huge proportion of what you what you need to earn. One of our sponsors this season is Pension B, a way to make setting up a self-employed pension easier. They do a pension specifically for self-employed people, so you can vary your contributions according to your income. One of the things that puts us solo workers off getting a pension is feeling like we won't always be able to afford to contribute. But this way, you can put in lump sums when you get paid for that big job, or trickle money in when things feel a little more precarious. Only 24% of self-employed people contribute into a private pension, even though in the UK, the government will top up our contributions. Go to pensionb.com slash self-employed pension to find out more. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. As I mentioned earlier, this season of The Solo Collective is sponsored by Tide. Tide has developed a platform for small businesses, which you can use without opening a bank account with them. It's called Cashflow Insights. Regardless of which bank you use for business banking, you can connect it to the Tide platform and within 24 hours you'll be getting insights such as cash flow predictions, credit score monitoring and advice about your income and outgoings. It can even tell you your credit status and help you look for business finance with no impact on your credit score. Connect your business bank account today to Tide and receive a £75 Uber or Uber Eats voucher, limited availability, terms and conditions apply, and this offer runs until the end of March. Download the app or Google Tide Cashflow Insights to find out more. I was really interested in the Sirut K. Chowler quote that you put in the book. You can't go on a healing journey if you can't think straight because you're scared you won't be able to pay your rent or buy your groceries. You were writing in this part of the book was about financial therapy. But I kind of feel as though there's something really profound to be said about that, not just about whether you can access financial therapy, which you can't very easily in the UK, but also on this kind of commodification of wellness, which I have a real axe to grind about and have talked about on the podcast before, but this idea that you need a certain amount of money in order to be well. Yeah. (laughs) Because all the stuff around wellness costs. But if you're not in a position to pay for any of that stuff, then somehow you don't have the right to feel well. I mean, it just seems extraordinary to me. I mean, I'm not astonished because we're in the era of late capitalism where everything is commodified but how have we made just the act of it's not even act is it just the fact of being okay how have we allowed that to become so commodified and I talk a bit in the book about you know the kind of ubiquitous hierarchy of needs so Abraham Maslow's kind of model for what you need as a human to feel okay and then at the top of the pyramid to feel sort of happy and fulfilled but so many of those basic needs require money and that's just to be okay and then you know as we go further up lots of those other things also need money and so many of the sort of solutions to 
the absolute wildness of modern life and all of the expectations and pressures that are on most adults a lot of them have a financial implication even if it's just things like taking a duvet day if you get statutory sick pay then you're not going to get that for one day off you're not going to get any pay for for starters if you need to take a week off for your mental health and you're on SSP that can completely break your budget you know similar with fitness like if you're somebody who needs to be coached through a fitness process like a personal trainer that comes at a huge cost and that's because that's their livelihood a lot of the things that we are told that will help us feel better come at a big financial cost whether it's a loss of income and this is particularly true for self-employed people because you know if we don't go to work if we don't do the work we don't get paid and Anna Quadrerado has a really good way of putting it, which is that, you know, when you're employed, you get paid for your input. When you're self-employed, you get paid for your output. It's particularly true of us. And I have so many times desperately needed to take some time off, but not felt able to because of a gap in earnings. It's really tricky. And I think it increasingly a lot of wellness is becoming like gated off to people without big like piles of financial privilege is quite frustrating yeah it's horrible it's really frustrating one of the things I think a lot of people who work by themselves or for themselves find really challenging is financial future their financial future and thinking about that because I think that often when you work alone the present feels so precarious and your income streams feel so uncertain that it can be really difficult to start making decisions about things like pension saving. And I just wonder if you've got any advice for people who feel that they've just closed off that completely, that they just cannot possibly contemplate what the financial future looks like because now is just too hard. Yeah, I think it is really, really tricky. And there have definitely been times when I actually for my well-being have had to block off thoughts of the future temporarily Mm. but I think the real the big thing really is to start as small as you can so you know don't launch into a big like five ten year plan or retirement plan do something small you know I don't have a significant amount in a pension at all because when I was employed I was never earning very much I had two maternity leaves and then when I was self-employed when I was first self-employed I was still trying to service a massive amount of debt I would not ever recommend I couldn't recommend to someone to launch into self-employment in the way that I did because um, (laughs) things were very precarious but when I was finally at a point where I was able to slightly look forwards one of the first things I did was just opened a pensions account and I opened it with a company that have like an app so that I can see everything really clearly I started steps to like transfer my pensions and whether that's worth doing or not really depends on what kind of pension you have already Mm -hmm. but I just set up a standing order or direct debit for like a really small amount each month and it helped to quieten down that like future anxiety because I knew that I was just putting something in 
and you're saving your pension over such a long period of time that actually small contributions do make a big difference yeah that just doing something small you know even if it's about saving so building that emergency fund that you talked about earlier that's something that not that many people have but it is a real like insurance policy that emergency fund can give you a bit of security and insurance around that as well but if three months worth of income feels like this huge weight then again like start small and if you can start the habit of transferring a bit of your money into savings to build up that pot then when you have more income if there comes a point where you have more income that is there naturally as an option like I could add it to my savings it's much easier decision to make than I will start saving if that makes sense and that's why a lot of the time people say that they'll save when they can afford to which is obviously totally legitimate if you're not earning a living wage but if you are and you're able to even like a fiver a month just to put a line in the sand and then you know if you get some birthday money or an inheritance that like channel for your money is always already being carved out it's much easier to direct money down that route keeping it quite small and building from that I think would be the best certainly what works best for me yeah that's really wise advice it's interesting what you say about the pension and and sort of starting small and having it there as a way of kind of habituating behavior because that's exactly what I did without realizing I started a pension I had a big gap after I went self-employed I had a big gap where I wasn't contributing to a pension at all Um, and then I set one up which I thought it was on my list for like three years or something um, because I thought it was going to be really hard and it wasn't at all. It was 20 minutes or something. And then I just started putting, I think, £50 a month in most months when I could afford it. And and now I'm in a position where the habit is such that I put 10% of everything that I earn into it just as a, as a matter of course. But it took a while to shift from a small amount to a a percentage of my income I like the kind of the gradual incline of um, increasing contributions I think that works much better psychologically is there anything else in terms of practical stuff that you routinely would advise solo workers to do in terms of finances not in terms of like financial advice but in terms of practical stuff that they can do to try and create some sense of order out of the slightly frightening financial chaos that many of us find ourselves in Yeah, so I think one of the things is that sometimes you find that people who work for themselves, work alone, think that budgeting's like not for them because of having a really irregular income. But actually, it can still be really helpful because even though your income's irregular, the things that go out, a lot of the things that go out are still on a monthly schedule. So one of the things that I wanted to create was a budgeting spreadsheet because that's what works for me but that can be adapted for that irregular income so it's got a box for stuff that's carried forward from the month before for example it's has it's split out into weeks so that you can pinpoint when you're getting paid but yeah it's still really helpful to have a budget even if it's not perfect and you have to do workarounds than not to have that at all but what I also find really helpful is to concentrate a little bit more on cash flow than you are on 
sort of obviously profits important and you know annual profits important but um try and have something a bit like a cash flow tracker because again it's like about that peace of mind and having something to refer to quite literally just something that tells you which money is coming in when and how much you will have in your bank account at various points it's much easier to sort of process than having like a quarterly plan or an annual plan for how much money you're going to be coming in so you know what's going to be in your account when essentially okay and what's going out obviously okay so I use one of the challenger banks and the app in that I think does something similar because I don't really understand why it's different to just a regular set of statements but there's something about the way that it presents the information which means that I've got real clarity on what is there what I've spent it on and also what upcoming over the next five days or so what upcoming costs I've got that are standing orders and direct debits and so on and then it also does this pie chart thing for each month where it can show it shows you exactly what you've spent on groceries on shopping on childcare, on savings or whatever which isn't relatively new to me I've had it for a couple of years now and I find that really really helpful and often quite shocking actually yeah <laughs> let's not talk about how much money I've spent in certain years on going out for dinner yeah and how, how much I do not now spend on going out for dinner because that was just horrific there's a there's a lot in the kind of personal development literature isn't there about goal setting and being very specific with your goals and I think this is very relevant to money like it's very easy to say I can I will spend less Mm-hmm. But if you don't know where the money's going, you can't make a concrete goal of I will not spend X amount per year on going out for dinner because that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to see, don't you? You have to have actual oversight of what is happening in your account. Definitely. And I think that's something where, you know, challenger banks and other fintechs are really helpful. I'm really grateful for that because you know my sister designed this spreadsheet for me as I mentioned earlier and that's great but Excel is not somewhere I live happily at all so I lack the kind of the language with which to build the tools that I might need myself so I'm really really grateful for those tools when they arrive. So are there any specific apps or general sort of styles of app or bits of software that you think make self-employed life easier? that you use or that you recommend? Yeah, so I mean, what I have is like a toolkit on my phone, which is just all of the sort of finance stuff. So I have an accounting app on there. I use QuickBooks for my sole trader stuff because I find it the most sort of intuitive. But then I also have Google Sheets on there, which is where like my income tracker and my personal budget lives as well if I need to add something in the moment or check something in the moment that's lives on my phone then in there as well I have all of my banking apps I also use an app called snoop which is I would say would be always my like number one recommendation it does quite a lot of this stuff that you discuss but you can add multiple accounts so you can add a credit card you can add you know your joint I have our joint account and my personal account and then you can analyze your spending either separately or as one big picture but it also pulls in a bit of sort of the stuff that you might go to moneysavingexpert.com for so things like 
switches and deals and things like that and they're tailored I'd no idea how the algorithm does it but it's all tailored to your requirements and what you're already spending on bills and things like that it takes a lot of the sort of mental load off managing my money definitely I have found but obviously Martin Lewis and Money Saving Expert still really great resource I am on that website at least once a day (laughs) I also you know a couple of things like personal finance wise so I also have a pension app in there actually but then I also have like a savings app and it's called a borrow wellbeing app so if you're someone who uses credit cards either like monthly and then pays them off as a way to build your credit score or if you're trying to pay down some debt actually really good companion is called Illumini and it kind of shows you if you're paying too much interest all of that stuff so there are loads and loads of things out there but I think the main ones I would say would be Google Sheets if you do like a spreadsheet you can copy everything across (laughs) to there it has like really similar functionality and then something like Snoop that sort of does both things so helps you to budget and maybe gives you recommendations for where you could save a bit of money as well well that's brilliant thank you so much this has been so helpful I've learned so much I love how you present it in a really unintimidating way it's extremely rare in the finance world so I think it's really valuable and thank you for everything that you're doing thank you thanks so much for having me Rebecca I am going to go and look at getting some more finance apps for my phone. I think it's the one time where I actually could legitimately use my phone more rather than less. And I think the more oversight you have of your finances, even though it makes me feel a bit weird to think about looking more at my money than I already do, I think the more oversight you have, the better. Yeah, I'm just so grateful to Claire. I'm so grateful that she tells her story with such honesty and compassion for herself and for other people. The financial world could do with more people like Claire. I don't think as a sector it's set up in the same way as maybe we need it to be with a kind of focus on our well-being and our welfare as much as what's actually in our bank accounts. If you want to find out more about Claire then the best place to look is on her Instagram account My Frugal Year. Five Steps to Financial Wellbeing is Claire's second book. Her first one, which goes into real detail about her journey, is called Real Life Money. And it's also really, really good. Everything that Claire talked about, all of her recommendations will be linked in the show notes. So don't feel like you have to scrabble about on Google trying to find them. We will collect them all and put them there for you. You can find me on Instagram too, at Seal, B-E-X, Seal. Or you can go to the website howtoworkalone.com. And also, if I could just ask you a little favour, if you can just tell one other solo worker about this podcast, anyone you think would benefit from it, that would really help us, as would if you leave us a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. This series is brilliantly produced by Hester Kant. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.